0: On the new podcast, "American Criminal," you'll learn about the fraud, theft and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders. Was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts.: Welcome to Glass Houses," a Billy
1: Joel
2: podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor, and I'm Jack Frinino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs in history and what his music has meant to us.
3: in the middle of a national tour that was sold out before he ever hit the road. Now, like most major tours, it's a big production. They're traveling with four tractor-trailer trucks full of equipment and his largest stage show ever, including a full horn section and backup singers. Now, we've been dropping in since early January, so you're going to see Billy, his band, and the crew in a variety of settings, backstage, rehearsing, and just hanging out. These are rehearsals on a soundstage in Manhattan. What happens is we're going to go to the first gig, which is up in Providence, and we're going to have rehearsals in the Coliseum itself because the room is big and it's going to have a different sound and the stage will be set up. Those are production rehearsals, like dress rehearsals. And so it's it's a couple of months that goes into it. For a person going to a show, it just seems like you get up on stage and sing, but obviously that's not what happens. No, there's uh, you have to look at... Uh, I've got nine, ten 10 albums out now. You have to condense that material down into a show. You can't do every song you've ever written. So you start looking at, okay, what songs are we gonna do? Then you figure out what the instrumentation is gonna be, what kind of, uh, how you're gonna augment the basic group, which is why we have the horns, the singers. You audition people. Then there's pre-rehearsal rehearsals, which is the Mark Rivera, our sax player, who works with the horn section before we even come in, works with the singers uh, to get their parts. Then there's, you know, agents and uh, pre-production planning. Steve Cohen starts planning, you know, they they build stages, they have designs, blueprints. Then you start having your first rehearsals when you're just kind of relearning all the songs, which you haven't done. It's not just like getting back on a pair of skis and going downhill. You have to, there's so many words to remember and arrangements and beginnings and endings. I don't know if a lot of people know, too. On a record, a lot of times there's a fade, the song just fades out. Keeping the faith, oh yeah, keeping the faith. Yeah. Now live, you can't do that. You have to have an ending, and sometimes they're stupid. Keeping the faith, oh yeah, you know. And it's nah, that doesn't work. And it, a lot of time, it's put put into just figuring out how do we end this thing. Billy Joel's 1984 tour will eventually hit a total of 60 cities, running right through the summer.
4: Didn't I say I wasn't ready for
2: Billy Joel's An Innocent Man album earned him a new generation of fans upon its release in 1983, but the accompanying tour didn't kick off until the next calendar year. Dubbed From a Piano Man to an Innocent Man, the shows were unlike any other Billy had mounted until this point.
1: The core band was augmented with backup singers and a horn section, and with a handful of new hit songs, older concert
2: staples were no longer in the sets. While some accounts show a rocky start, The band eventually hit its stride, and today the production is well documented thanks to a televised show from Wembley Arena in the UK that was broadcast live. Thanks to our
1: research and contributions from Friends of the Podcast, we're bringing you a much more detailed look at the Innocent Man tour. We'll look at tour dates, typical set lists, and reviews of the tour that outline its evolution in nearly 70 shows
2: over six months. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's From a Piano Man to an Innocent Man tour of 1984. Talk about a victory lap, right? This tour must have been (laughs) insane. Billy had to know that an innocent man had just bought him at least a few more years of pop stardom, being that he had been building up his audience, arguably through Piano Man, even a little more than Cold Spring Harbor. But, you know, Piano Man up to the stranger and seeing what a break felt like, I think he would know a second one when he saw it. Of course, his career was far from floundering when an innocent man came out, but- As we've said in other episodes, you know this is the album that sort of introduced him to the next generation, to a younger audience. As we mentioned in our last episode, this record was platinum, like what, two months? Two, three months after it was released?
1: Yeah, I think by October. So you're looking at about three
2: months. Funny enough, for some reasons we don't know for sure, but we have some very strong hypotheses about, uh, the tour didn't start until the next year.
1: Yeah, and to my knowledge, this is the only case where an album tour did not start in the calendar year where the album came out. And uh, yeah, there's a couple of reasons we suspect this is the case, but certainly fascinating. And I think the success of the album, both at radio and both on MTV, really afforded him the time before the tour started without consequence.
2: Offline Michael has posited that just with MTV taking off and Billy's videos for this album getting such heavy rotation, That sort of took the place of having to go out and sell the record essentially via uh, live concerts in every city, you know, in every big city in the country.
1: Yeah. You know, oftentimes a tour will start either right after the record comes out or even in many cases before, you know, I saw Matchbox 20 in May of this year, a week before the record came out. So they played like four songs from a record that wasn't even out yet. That would happen pretty often. So you've got the Innocent Man tour kicking off what? You're looking at about four or five months after the record came out. You yeah. know, they're not new songs to the audience by the time the tour dates happen. A lot of these are bona fide hits. So you don't have that thing of like, oh, playing a new song from the record and people don't really know it yet. They know these songs by now. Yeah, it must have been a very different experience. And before we get too deep into this episode, I wanted to send a big thank you to our friend Eric Fallon. Eric is a great friend and a longtime friend of the podcast. All of the audio from the Wembley show in June 1984 that you're hearing came from Eric. He sent us over an amazing audio quality copy of this show and allowed us to use a few snippets here on this episode. So Eric, thank you so much. We really appreciate it.
2: And I should mention now that we got a lot of help, not only from Jeff Fisher this time, but also our friend Jenny Nordaby, both of whom have put untold hours over the years into uh, collecting and archiving as much Billy, Billy Joel memorabilia and ephemera as possible and it's thanks to their tireless tireless researching and indexing and organizing that we can bring you all um these distilled highly detailed accounts of these of these tours we have the basic dates here it ran from January 18th 1984 until July 5th 1984 uh starting at the Providence Civic Center in Providence Rhode Island and wrapping up at Madison Square Garden as Jeff Fisher notes, this tour was very different from the ones before it in a few ways. There was a horn section and backup singers, something we hadn't seen on a Billy Joel stage yet. As we already mentioned, the tour started uh, significantly later, a significant amount of months after the album came out. Jeff also mentioned that um, it was a mix of uh, colleges, secondary markets, and major venues. He's done all of these before, but this seems to be the first time he, he sort of did a mix of all of them.
1: In later years, you would see where... An artist would tour the A markets, the major markets, and then do another swing around the country in the B markets. um, You know that he didn't hit before. Yeah, this is interesting that it goes very much in between the two, where you're going to see, like a you know Landover, Maryland. You're going to see in Ann Arbor, Michigan, but then you know a couple months later you're going to see Detroit and you're going to see Chicago and you're going you know you're going to see some of these bigger cities that are the anchors for a lot of big tours. Uh, So. It is really fascinating that it was a hybrid of both. And probably the last time it was a lot like this.
2: Right. And, you know, in a technical sense, he was touring two albums, as Jeff points out, uh, because the re release of uh, Cold Spring Harbor comes out around this time. But he had nothing to do with that. So there's no mention of it.
1: Yeah. Billy uh, has gone on record to say he really had nothing to do with that re release. You know, Columbia brokered a deal with Artie Rip, whatever that was, and decided to re release it. And capitalize on the big success of An Innocent Man in 83. So uh, Cold Spring Harbor got released just before Christmas in 83. Uh, you know, for the Billy Joel fan who
2: you thought you had everything. Right. I was to say for the fan who has everything. A quick, uh, quick stocking stuffer there. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So that came out very timely. And again, only a month or so before this tour kicked off. But right. you're not going to see any songs from that record. Or even a lot of the older albums in the set list. So it's the blessing and the curse for Billy. By this time, Innocent Man's a huge record. Dialogue Curtain had some bona fide hits. Glass Houses, 52nd Street, The Stranger, all huge records. So that's getting the focus. And save for playing Piano Man and playing Angry Young Man, the first four or five records really aren't getting a lot of coverage up through turnstiles on this tour.
2: The biggest nod, at least at uh, street life serenade is that, uh, they're using the Mexican connection again for their walk on song for a little while. They used, still used uh, chain gang, uh, back, uh, chain gang by Sam cook, which was the walk off of a nylon curtain tour. And ironically, yeah. you know, as Billy's doing, uh, in songs inspired by people like Sam cook. And as we mentioned on our previous episode, probably Chang Gang in particular, he returns to the Mexican Connection this time around.
1: The sole remnant of the classic 70s Billy shows was that intro music returning. And it's funny, just a side note, I was watching a bootleg show from the 98 tour, the Greatest Hits 3 tour, as it were. They were back to using the Mexican Connection on that run, which I totally forgot about. Billy was getting a lot of MTV coverage too around that time, uh, obviously with the music videos that we've talked about. Uh, but there was also a... MTV Liner Notes special that had an interview with Billy and there was some footage of Billy and the band rehearsing for the tour, probably at SIR, you know, on Long Island. And they're rehearsing the very rare performance of Easy Money, which started out being played on this tour, but fell off set list
3: very fast. The new stuff from the new album is going to be a real kick to doing the show. It's like soul music. And I always wanted to do that one. I want the easy-
2: Yeah, and and that's one that's rarely if ever gotten seen any stage time since. In the tours prior, we had a few songs where you
1: would see Billy up front and center or up and running around. You'd had Only the Good Die Young, Big Shot, Still Rock and Roll to Me, You May Be Right. Those were the four where he was up in mobile. So for An Innocent Man, for Tell Her About It, for Uptown Girl, The Longest Time, all these new songs, he's up with the wireless mic, either with the band doing cappella or working the stage. So you're getting a much different type of performance on these new songs because on the Innocent Man record, for most of the songs, the piano is not the focal point. Billy is like the front man singer. So on this tour, you get a big change with him coming up front.
2: A lot about the tour is documented in the accompanying edition of uh, Root Beer Rag, the Billy Joel newsletter. This is a particularly robust uh, edition for the tour. The rather obvious on the nose uh, subtitle from a piano man to an innocent man. But it is noted that it marks 10 years from piano man.
1: For the cover of the tour program. They took stylistic cues from live from Long Island.
2: Yeah, I was thinking that too. Yeah. Michael of course is is showing off his actual print copy. I'm looking at the PDF like a poser, I suppose.
1: <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's got the 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 red and yellow coloring to match it with everything sort of on an angle. So it's definitely following the theme of the release that came out in 1983-84 as well uh, yeah. on VHS.
2: And uh apropos to the name, the second, you know, w- you know, the in, I guess was this the inside cover here has a collage of photos of Billy through the years. Um, curiously, focusing on ones where he's looking angry and singing at the same time. There's one looks like it's from the Big Shot video. Uh, yep. Yeah, yeah where lip
1: standing up behind him.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's uh, one looks like it's from Glass Houses. Even when he's behind his boat, he's making the same I'm singing very loud face with his captain's right. hat on.
1: Yeah, the the choice of photos is funny to me, you know, this is following up the heels of the nylon curtain tour and none of these photos are from that era. It's glass houses and earlier started off some interesting things to know and I like these tour programs because they are nice documents of that time and what was going on in Billy's career and things of that nature. One thing to start that's a little bit fascinating. We'll read just a couple things here, but not everything because we'd be here all night. But there's a fun little Q&A on the, uh, the first oh, yeah. the first main page. Billy's fan club obviously was the Root Beer Rag. People could write in to ask Billy questions and he would answer them and they printed a few of them here. Some of these are tied into the record and, the, and uh, things like that. So the question is, uh, what do you think is the best song on An Innocent Man and which do you think is your best album yet? And that's from Ellie... Fine gold in Seattle, Washington. Billy says, since I feel my songs are my children, I can't hold one above the other. However, some days I lean more towards a certain song depending on my mood. These days I lean towards this night and I think Nylon
2: Curtain is the best album so far. And the next question. Yeah, go ahead. Quick uh, housekeeping, so to speak on the next one. Where was the concert portion of the Good Night Saigon videotape? The answer is the Nassau Coliseum on Long Island. And that was from the Live from Long Island concert. Next question. You do such cool things with your feet, especially in your
1: video. (laughs) Have you ever had dancing lessons? And that's from Christina Pat in New York City. And he says, no, but I danced a lot in junior high and high school.
2: This may be his uh, cranberry sauce slash I buried Paul moment. On your 52nd Street album, right after Until the Night, you whisper something that sounds like Italian sausage. Am I right or am I crazy? Michelle Favarillo, Tempe, Arizona. Answer being, you may be right, you may be crazy. (laughs) Uh, Uh, we'll never know
1: (laughs) the next question will Cold Spring Harbor ever be reissued from Barry Eddy in Northport, New York he says it has been recently reissued on Columbia Records but I won't buy it (laughs) yeah funny that they deigned to
2: mention it really but he's even like like showing his disdain for it right there what is your favorite band and song for 1983? Uh, Julie Charset, Clarkston, Michigan Answer is the police king of pain, which we can say is the precursor to him writing, uh, running on ice with the intention of giving it to sting.
1: And then obviously all for Lena, very, uh, police influenced as well. A few years yeah. prior so mm-hmm. they were definitely digging on the police for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the next question, those of us who read the Rupier rag, enjoy your music most, but what kind of music do you enjoy listening to? That's from Michelle Botensky in West orange, New Jersey. He says everything from rock
2: and jazz to pop, classical, Latin, and folk music. And finally, Marianne Passmore, Gibson British, British Columbia. Are there any songs you've written and not published? What you hear is pretty much what I've written, which is mostly true. Except we know there was a, a good trunk's worth of songs from Cold Spring Harbor, but that was pretty early on.
1: Yeah, and you know he's he's using a little creative license by saying pretty much. So there's obviously a few things here and there. Yeah, but Billy also had the habit. Of saving pieces parts for later. Right. So there would be an idea that was partially fleshed out in 1977. And we'll we'll talk about this more in depth in you know a couple of years, whenever we get to the stranger. <laughs> uh, but in the in his Billy's notebook and lyric book, you see him framing out the sections of Italian restaurant. Mm. And you see Razorblade, which was Stiletto, right? Right. You see Allentown listed. Yeah. And you see Scandinavian skies. This is 1977. Wow. So yeah. at least you, he had these nuggets of ideas floating around for five years. Mm-hmm. And they just didn't find their home yet. And that's the kind of
2: writer Billy seems to be in a lot of ways. Well, we even said, you know, in innocent man, he wrote and So It Goes Around That Time and saved It Till Stormfront when it fit. Right. Absolutely. And I think one of the most timely departments in this newsletter is an interview with Billy Joel on the explosion of music videos. Yeah, this is a good one. And you have to remember that this is when this is just coming about. So this isn't as obvious as it would sound now. This was written in 1983. So this is when Uptown Girl,
1: tell her about it. I think were are the only two videos at the time.
2: Yeah, they mentioned those. And, uh, you know, some of this stuff we've heard a whole bunch of times before, you know, him just talking about how he's not comfortable in front of the camera, things like that. I found this one pretty interesting. As a viewer, how do you rate most of the clips you see? Uh, Billy says, I find some of them to be very entertaining. I find some of them to be very ingenious and creative. Some of them are really highly artistic. Some of them are boring. Some of them are stock. However, this is an art form which is still in its infancy and it will grow in advance and become highly sophisticated in the years to come. And I look forward to seeing how this art form develops. And, you know, unfortunately for my money, I think it peaked not long after this, if not by now. I think they definitely <laughs> became more stock after this. It, you know, I mean, obviously they got bigger, but I don't think until YouTube <laughs> that they, they, they were significantly a different beast. Yeah, this is
1: another interesting one too, where they ask, uh, will the video v- boom affect a group's need to tour? I believe that for new groups who are unable to get funding to go on the road the way groups used to, video will serve a purpose that a tour might have served. As for artists such as myself, who come from a touring base, a road base, and who have built themselves as live performing artists. I don't think video will eliminate the need or the effect of touring. We would absolutely see that where a lot of acts, a lot of pop acts would, would certainly be video acts really in album acts that like you would never really see touring. Not to this degree that, you know, Billy
2: Joel would yeah, that's, a, that's what it was like when album sales were still, still a thing. Yeah, in that case, he, this one too. How about music in general? Are videos changing the nature of pop and rock music today? And he says, I believe for some conceptual groups, yes, they do have something to do with the way people are creating music. For instance, there are some European groups this applies to. I've noticed a group called Ultravox whose music really hadn't moved me one way or the other until I saw the video that was done on them. It made the music something else entirely. I believe the group wrote specifically for the video that they were going to do. I think it's an interesting way of composing for some people. It's not my way of doing it. However, if it generates inspiration for writing music, then it does have an impact on composition. So here's one where Billy talks about the difference between uh, you
1: know doing videos and recording an album, like, which is harder for him. The question was, is shooting a video even more demanding in terms of time and concentration than recording music? You sometimes feel like you'll run out of patience for shooting. And Billy says video production is much easier mentally than writing and recording music, but more draining physically and not as comfortable. Sometimes I get, I get very impatient at a video shoot because I'm not in control of the situation. Yeah, very interesting take on it. It probably wasn't apparent at this time, but like we've come to see what, you know, what a toll. The creative process of writing and recording was on him in many ways. And I'm sure with videos, he just wanted to get in and get out. Be a professional, do it well. Video shoots take a long time, a lot longer than people think.
2: Then we have uh, pictures of the band. Uh, we have the you know the core lords here being uh, Doug, David, Lib, and Russell. Uh, this is what, Mark Rivera's second tour with the band? Yeah, this is Mark's second tour, uh, as well as David LeBolt. They uh, joined on the Nylon Curtain tour. And then the horn section, uh, in a nod to uh, the Tell Her About a video, is billed as the Affordables. We have uh, Larry Ecton, Bob Livingwood, and Glenn Stolpin, And then Peter Hewlett and Bob Duncan on background vocals. Bob Duncan looking like uh, Mick Jones from The Clash there. Peter Hewlett looks like he got caught by surprise. <laughs> yeah, very is much right? so. Right. Let
4: me introduce this horn section to you. Uh, these guys are uh, the legendary New York Affordables horn section. That's Glenn Stolf and Bob Livingood, and Larry Edkin. All right. Let me introduce the singers to you so you know who these guys are. Over my head here, this is Frank Sims and Peter Hewlett on vocals. Let me introduce the band to you so you know who everybody is up here. On, uh, on the saxophone, that's Mark Rivera. Uh, let's see, this next guy, very, very natty dresser, natty dresser, you know, one tour with David Bowie, he thinks he knows all about fashion now, <laughs> but he does play a good uh, synthesizer and keyboards and uh, organ, that's Dave LaBolt. <laughs> so, who's next? Uh, uh, yes, the madman. On rhythm guitar and vocals, Russell Javers. <laughs> Next guy's got a totally new look for tonight. He knew we were gonna be on TV. <laughs> kind of moving into the Duran Duran vibe a little. Like, got his hair coiffed everything. No, it, it, it looks good, though. You're getting your act check, check. together. It's nice. Ali Guitar, David Brown. Uh, this next guy's been with me the longest, so he can dress comfortably. <laughs> Raw. On bass guitar, uh, it's Doug Stegmeier. And a father any second now on the drums, Liberty DeVito.
1: Yeah, and then there's uh, some funny <laughs> funny photos of like the crew. It looks like a lot of them are like, the backdrop is like a 1970s hotel curtain.
2: Dude, look how young Steve Cohen looks.
1: Yeah, so you've got Harry Sandler, tour manager, Brian Higginson, assistant tour manager, Bob Hurwitz, who's the business affairs manager, and he's got a, a phone up to his <laughs> ear, which is pretty pretty funny a candid smiling shot of Brian Ruggles, sound engineer, Uh, Steve Cohen, who's looking like a young Bruce Willis there, (laughs) Kirk Morris, production manager, Adam Hunt, drum technician, Tim McCarthy, guitar technician, Doug Lacey, keyboard technician, Ted Leonard, keyboard technician, Dave Cobb, Claire Brothers, sound engineer, and CJ Patterson, Claire Brothers, monitor engineer. And interesting, they had two people apparently they couldn't get photos of.
2: It's just like a yearbook. (laughs) Yeah, right. somebody yes, somebody's not there. <laughs> Steve
1: paterno Rigger, Bob Thrasher, Stage Manager. You know, there's a longer list that um we won't uh, necessarily get into in the credits, but someone who I uh a couple of people who I do want to point out, actually namely one of the truck drivers is a young man named Rick LaPoint who we would all come to know and love as Chainsaw. He was a truck yeah. driver back then.
2: There's also a spotlight on Liberty in this one, uh, with some Q and A. He mentions that after the Nylon Curtain tour, he was on tour for six months with Stevie Nicks. Which actually, I didn't realize Roy Bittan from uh, the East Street Band was on that one for a bit.
1: Yes, and uh, so was
2: uh, Ben Montench from the Heartbreakers. Talking about how it's different playing for Stevie. There's mention of how the bass player like took a while to lock in with him. And finally said, I understand. I understand now how you play on top of the beat. The whole mood of New York is up tempo which is obviously different from the California sound, which is why Billy went with that. That's an interesting angle. Talks about how quickly An Innocent Man got done when compared to uh, The Nylon Curtain. It's just so fast he thought it was going to be a bomb. What music are you listening to these days? Mostly a lot of Christmas music. I have a hard time getting too excited about a lot of the new records Coming out, I find myself playing a lot of old R&B. Paul Simon once said, whatever music you listen to in your late teens or early 20s is the music you listen to and you love for the rest of your life. And I think that's true. Talks about not drinking anymore. In
1: true Liberty fashion, his final question in the Q&A, they ask, what New Year's resolutions are you making for 1984? And he says, I'm going to start smoking and feed my dog.
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Totally random and Liberty. And then, you know, then you have some ads and and the listings of the other albums available, things like that. Live from Long Island, you know, know, the Innocent Man record. Russ Jowers and Doug Stegmaier play La Bella Strings. Liberty DeVito plays Zildjian.
1: This is back in the day where, you know, mail order. So you could actually order the four different tour shirts via the mail. Oh, yeah. Actually, there's quite a bit going on here. You had uh, the turquoise hot pink sleeveless shirt. For eleven dollars, white cutoffs shirt. <laughs> yeah, eight eighteen. You had some golf shirts which were twenty five dollars, long sleeve shirt. Uh, yeah, a couple different shirts that were like fifteen and twelve dollars. You had the Keeping the Faith Wings pin, which was only 2 bucks, and, and an Innocent Man pin, which was 2 bucks as well. Prices are valid through December 31st, 1984, I and we just it. missed it. <laughs>
2: Steve, um, Steve, I just sent my check in. What the did hell, you get man? It? Yeah.
1: But yeah, there's an interesting piece from Steve, if you guys uh, ever get a hold of this and want to check it out. As someone who's been with Billy for, at this point, almost 10 years, so it's really... It's always fun to see his take. And I don't know many touring productions that would, especially of a solo artist, that would give a spotlight, a huge spotlight to the drummer and your lighting director. I mean, this kind of thing didn't happen in most camps. It's really cool to see the love and appreciation that Billy had for them and the whole camp had. There's a nice centerfold collage of photos and that runs the gamut a little bit more. You have some of the shots from live from Long Island, which we come to know, The, the songs of the attic photo, some glass houses stuff. And, um, yeah, it's a combination of candid stuff and uh post stuff from some shows. so it's a it's a cool little piece. These things are fun. They're a nice little snapshot of what was going on at that point in time. So it's yeah. I love seeing all the old photos, the articles, the old ads. You've got a illustration from the Glass houses mm-hmm. album, which was our inspiration for our artwork. yeah, it's it's a fun little piece for sure. And then uh, obviously, at the back,
2: Frank management, something Liberty sort of alluded to that he had been on tour with Stevie Nicks for 6 months. You know, Michael has a pretty good beat on why he thinks this tour took so long to come about after the release of the album. So, like we said, the tour started
1: about 5 months later in January, and I was trying to piece together why because that wasn't common obviously. I started kind of putting some pieces together and I realized that three of the guys of the band were on other tours for second half of 1983. So Liberty DeVito, as we mentioned, got the gig with Stevie Nicks on the Wild Hearts tour. And that ran from May 27th of 1983 all the way to November 24th. So that was a long tour. So that actually probably gives you a good idea of when the Innocent Man record was done by because Liberty was out with Stevie Nicks at the end of May. But they probably didn't want to put it out quite that early because obviously Nylon Curtain was... Still charting. So that ran all the way to November 24th. So not only Liberty, though, on the road with Stevie, it had occurred to me that David Bowie was on his Serious Midnight tour. And that was supporting the Less Dance album. And on that one, you had Frank Sims as well as David LeBolt were touring with David Bowie on this run. So that tour started May 18th of 1983 and ran all the way to December
2: 8th we've keyed into it a few times, but it's not all that well known that these guys did go out with other people besides Billy. Uh, obviously, you know, from the, I would say from the stranger through, through the bridge, you know, that was a pretty constant cycle. 77, 78. What did, um, Glass Houses was 80, Nylon Curtain was 82, Innocent Man was 83 and a close 83 off uh, off Nylon Curtain. It's making the albums and then going out. It was a pretty stacked schedule. For a lot of guys, especially the core band, there wasn't a ton of downtime,
1: but uh you know, occasionally the opportunity would come up. I know like in 81 after the Glass Houses run before Nylon, David Brown was with Simon & Garfunkel, like he did the big Central Park show. Doug Liberty Russell, you know, they did played Karen Carpenter's record, Phoebe Snow, you know, get wet. A lot of like Phil Ramone, A&R projects, they were busy in the studio. You know, it's easier to come in for a couple days of tracking, but when it comes to touring, it's a much longer commitment. Kind of wonder how it was going to play out. Like, did these opportunities come up or did Billy decide like, oh, okay, you know, I'm not going to go out till 84. So the band doesn't have the source of income coming in when they're not touring, obviously uh, from that. So, you know, they're going to want to fill fill their calendar. So uh, you know, I'm very curious which came first, the decision yeah. to postpone or the band getting the gigs.
2: Yeah. So with all that in mind, here's the tour. As we said, you know, it started in January, ended in July. So in January, uh, we kick it off on the 18th, Providence Civic Center, Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, then on the 20th, Cumberland County Civic Center, Portland, Maine. Two days later, Hershey Park Arena, Hershey PA. Then we have a uh, two-night stand. 25th and 26th, New Haven Coliseum, New Haven, Connecticut. On the 28th, Capital Center, Landover, Maryland. And then closing out on January 30th, Rochester Community War Memorial, Rochester, New York.
1: All right. And then we're getting into February. Now they're heading over into the Midwest. The first, we've got Centennial Hall, Toledo, Ohio. The second is University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. The fourth is Chrysler Arena in Ann Arbor, Michigan. The fifth is Market Square Arena in Indianapolis, Indiana. Which I read just the other day. That was the venue of Elvis's final concert. So that's an interesting huh. little tidbit. Yep. Yeah. And then on the 8th, we have the Charlotte Coliseum in Charlotte, North Carolina. The 10th is Rupp Arena, Lysington, Kentucky. The 11th, UTC Roadhouse, Chattanooga, Tennessee. And another two-night stand, which is not surprising. We're in Philly at the Spectrum on the 13th and 14th. On the 17th is The Scope in Norfolk, Virginia. The 19th is Murphy Center in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. 21st is the Orange County Civic Center in Orlando, Florida. 23rd is Mississippi Coast Coliseum in Biloxi, Mississippi. And the 24th, we are at the LSU Assembly Center in Baton Rouge, Louisiana.
2: Picking up in March, uh, after about just over two weeks off, we start on March 15th at the Hollywood Sportatorium in Pembroke Pines, Florida. March 17th, Bayfront Center, St. Petersburg, Florida. March 20th, Omni, Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, Richfield Coliseum in Richfield, Ohio on the 23rd. Civic Arena in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, March 24th. Boston Garden in Boston, the 26th. Memorial Auditorium in Buffalo, New York, the 28th. And then one more two-night stand, Rosemont Horizon, Rosemont, Illinois, uh, March 30th and 31st.
1: So moving on into April now, we are getting back continuing in the Midwest. The third, we're at Riverfront Coliseum in Cincinnati, Ohio. The fourth is Joe Louis Arena in Detroit, Michigan. The sixth is Carver Hawkeye Arena in Iowa City, Iowa. The seventh is Civic Center in St. Paul, which you'll recognize the St. Paul Civic Center from Songs in the Attic. The ninth is the Bob Devaney Sports Center in Lincoln, Nebraska, University of Nebraska. The 11th is the Myriad. Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. 14th is the Reunion Arena in Dallas, Texas. The 15th is the Summit in Houston, Texas. Same venue from the classic Houston 1979 show. 17th, we're at the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri. The 19th, we're at the St. Louis Arena in St. Louis, Missouri. The 21st is the McNichols Arena in Denver, Colorado. The 23rd is the Salt Palace in Salt Lake City, Utah. The 26th, we are at the ASU Activity Center in Tempe, Arizona. The 27th is the Convention Center in Tucson, Arizona. And we finish April with another two-night stand, April 29th and 30th, at the Inglewood Forum in Inglewood, California. And that is right next to the SoFi Stadium, which it wasn't there at the time, obviously, yeah. where, uh, where Jack and I saw Billy and Stevie Nicks uh, back in March.
2: Right. In May, Sports Arena, San Diego, California on the 3rd. Oakland Alameda County Coliseum, Oakland, California, May 5th. Tacoma Dome in Tacoma, Washington on the 8th. Memorial Coliseum, Portland, Oregon on the 9th. Now we're out overseas in Japan for a pair of two night stands. 21st and 22nd at Budokan, uh, Tokyo. 24th and 26th with a day off in between, Castle Sports Hall in Osaka. May 28th, Aichi Prefectural Gymnasium. In Nagoya, Um, there's no way I'm saying those right. And then we're back at the Budokan for another doubleheader, May 30th and 31st. Wow,
1: he did four Budokans. That's pretty impressive. Now we've got two more venues left, but several shows. What's fascinating here is in Europe, he's only playing Wembley Arena here. He's doing June 6th, 8th and 9th of 84 here at the Wembley Arena. And that's the only European set of dates. Because after that, he heads back stateside in June. Seven dates at Madison Square Garden. We've got June 23rd, 24th, 26th, 27th, 29th, and July 1st and 5th, all in 84. So this is a seven gardens live, if you will. That's like the victory lap of the victory lap. I'd like to see fish do that in 1984. Ooh, shots fired. <laughs> they were minnows at the time. Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> we love our fish friends. Yeah. Let, let's just get that out. It's all yeah. in fun. Hey, buddy. It's all cool. You hold them? Almost got me out of spit (laughs) take. We thought we'd kind of give you a snapshot idea of uh, the set lists throughout the tour. Stayed fairly consistent. Now, early on, Easy Money was in the set, but... I don't know if it just didn't work or what, but after only after a couple shows, maybe one or two even, uh, it fell out of set lists and never came back, unfortunately. Uh, but I just decided to grab a show near the end of the tour uh, so we could get an idea. Uh, this is June 27th, 1984, at Madison Square Garden. And we have Prelude, Angry Young Man, My Life, Piano Man, Don't Ask Me Why, Allentown, Goodnight Saigon, Pressure, Just the Way You Are. Scenes from an Italian restaurant, An Innocent Man. And now he's starting to set up uh, the, the doo section. So he does a few snippets. You lost that love and feeling. What's your name? A teenager in love. And then they all go into The Longest Time. And then after that, you have Leave a Tender Moment Alone with Toots Thielmans. So he appeared at, at least some of the New York shows. Then you had Stiletto, Sometimes a Fantasy. It's Still Rock and Roll to Me, Uptown Girl, big shot. And then the encore is tell her about it. You may be right. And encore two is only the good die young.
2: Funny to see tell her about it in that encore spot. I mean, kind of in there at all at this point, looking back now, you know, it does fit that sort of high energy end of the night ramp up that he does. He was pretty animated. I, uh, in preparation for this, I went back to watch some of the footage
1: from Wembley in, uh, June of 84 here. And, it was super high energy, you know, with those horn stabs and the, the singers and the band was just like firing on all cylinders. And Billy, you know, I know it's a show, you know, so he wants to play it up, but, uh, you know, for as much as he's slagged on the song, you know, in recent history, uh, he seems to be enjoying himself during performances of, the, uh, of this song back then. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's quite the upbeat number, certainly. You know, it was the number one hit, so the crowd ate it up. They loved it. Right. Yeah. Everybody's very familiar with it. And again, like with the Nylon Curtain tour, you know, this is still before Piano Man became what it was. No, it was popular. His fans really knew it, but it wasn't in that end third, like it has been
2: ever since Stormfront. So for all that though, to go by this first review, the tour may have gotten off to a rocky start. This is yeah. for the Globe and it's uh, this time Joel No Jewel. And it seems like uh, there was a lot of question due to a snowstorm about whether or not the concert was going to go on, and it did. And uh, the writer, Steve Morse, writes, uh, Was it worth driving through the snow to see Joel this time around? No. In a very uncharacteristic performance, Joel was often flat and unexciting in direct contrast to the many extraordinary shows he has put on in recent years. major problem was that there was less focus on Joel himself. He had added a host of new musicians, but the result was a cluttered stage and an overly rehearsed polished sound that often lacked fire, which stands in, in contrast to what Joel often wants to, what Billy often wants to do. you know he's usually tries to be a little underrehearsed and maybe this tour was why <laughs> or at least uh, in more recent years. You know
1: the big thing about it is you know suddenly you have the band or the musicians on stage ballooning considerably. You're yeah. adding two background singers, you're adding a horn section. So I can understand some people thinking that it feels a little more showy and a little less rock and roll.
2: Right. He donned shades and tried to prance like the rubber legged, you know, James Brown, but came off looking like John Belushi. <laughs> In contrast to the woman who wrote into Root Beer Rag saying, Oh, you do so much with your legs. <laughs> your right. Feet. Yeah. Part of the dilemma, this writer Steve Morse writes, he has become such a runway runaway superstar. Able to sell outrageously priced $25 t-shirts in the lobby that he's lost his hunger and drive. Ouch. Mm. But, you know, I mean, he is acknowledging many, many great shows. So that's at least something.
1: You're going to have an off night. So, I mean, yeah. I know reviews are, you know, sometimes there's an agenda with it. But, like, I never expect amazing reviews on, on my favorite artists, you know. But it, it's, it's fun to see somebody's uh, experience. You
2: know, Um, know, it's also the first night of the tour. So, you know, who knows how he was feeling that night? That sort of thing. Yeah, probably just still trying to feel it out. And then the next one, let's see how he does the next night up in Maine. "Ah, Billy Joel gives a rollicking concert in Portland. Working the grand piano like a maestro, Joel whipped his band through Angry Old Man, My Life, and Stranger before he came up for air and said hello. Instantly gained rapport with the crowd. After an intermission, parentheses, how many hotshot stars give you two sets in a concert anymore? Now, Joel bopped back on stage while the band made it sound like Sam and Dave reborn. His first encore knocked the place dead as he exploded into to tell her about it and follow that with You May Be Right, walked off again. And again, no one left. They knew he'd return. He had to. His sign-off song and advice to the masses had to be given. Only the Good Die Young enter, ended the concert with a rousing bang. So funny that back then it was only the Good Die Young was really known as the, as the ender. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And uh, Okay. This is interesting. What's that? The final paragraph, for
1: those who missed it, there is this consolation. Among the special elements to the evening was the presence of a huge multi-track recording system. Songs in the Attic may have been Joel's first live album, but a Friday night in Portland is any indication it will not be his last.
2: There's recording of that show, at least. John Jackson, let, let us know. <laughs> Uh-oh. Now, this next one doesn't slag on Billy, but has words about the crowd. Oh, I, see, I saw It has words about this, the yes. audience. Billy Joel, a dynamo, but crowd gets thumbs down. Let's see what the problem was here.
1: Oh, this is, uh, you'll get a kick out of it because yeah. we've had discussions about this in recent years, even as yeah. the crowd gets older.
2: Billy Joel, okay, but the crowd on the main floor level made the view of Joel on stage all but impossible. Uh, writers complaining that they uh, stood on their seats with their arms raised above their head, clapping and shouting and preventing people sitting adjacent to the main floor section from seeing anything except the lights above the stage. What a joke it was for these people who shelled out good money for supposedly good seats to have to tolerate such shenanigans. Shenanigans, I say, at a rock and roll concert. I'm shaking fists, two fists for you, Mr. Robert Messenger. I've been to campus concerts before, and while occasionally wild and woolly, some semblance of order is maintained, and crowds are encouraged to sit, not stand, during the performance. All right. All
1: right. But then you you look at this guy's picture and you're yeah. like, yep, yeah, that's that's right, that's yeah, about right yeah. for this guy. Go to bed, old man. Now we're getting into Charlotte, North Carolina, at the Charlotte Observer, February tenth, nineteen eighty four. Let's breeze through this guy and see what anything interesting. The headline reads: "Billy Joel and Band Dazzle Sellout Crowd" by Kathy Haight, uh, backed by a stellar nine-piece band that wouldn't quit. The group didn't break pace for nearly two hours, sending a sellout crowd of eleven. 11- thousand one hundred into fits of applause and repeated standing ovations band members rolled up their short sleeves donned dark wrapped around shades and snapped their fingers in time to the music saxophonist mark rivera ex- executed quick spins and drops to his knees and even jumped on top of the piano to spar musically with joel guitarist david oh they mentioned the pipe in allentown he also sang background vocals and pounded a metal pipe with a hammer as part of the sound of effects for allentown. I like when they mention the band, call them out, by you know,
2: yeah, yeah, it's
1: not, it's not often that happens. So here we got with guitarist David Brown, Russell Javers, and Doug Stegmeier, plus drummer Liberty DeVito, keyboardist David bolt and horn players Glenn <laughs> Stolpen, Bob Livinggood, and Larry Etkin. I'm sure they got the the sheet prior, you know, so they oh, could, yeah. uh, you know, they had all the info at their fingertips to write the piece. um, Delivered a tight, dynamic, and downright rowdy performance. At the piano Joel was a demon. <laughs> <laughs> he pounded, stood, made faces and spun around repeatedly to face the audience behind him. About two thirds of the way through the performance, the crowd seated in folding chairs on the coliseum floors rushed to the stage, screaming and holding out hands, roses, hats and other items. Billy Joel and his band couldn't have been more right.
2: So, she enjoyed the show, I would say. Sounds like it. All right, so we're on a roll now. Like things things yeah. are going well. Maybe a shaky start, but uh, it's looking good.
1: Now we're now we're getting into the rhythm of the tour. Florida today, and big shot Billy Joel just keeps him rocking. All right, now we're <laughs> now we're getting somewhere. Uh, all yeah. right, for every relaxed ballad such as "Just the Way You Are," there was a rollicking counterpoint with only "The Good Die Young" or "My Life." Joel's band: Liberty DeVito, Doug Stegmaier, Russell Javers, David Brown, and Mark Rivera contributed to the good time too. They're the same musicians who have performed on many of his albums, and the camaraderie and good-natured horseplay added to the audience's appreciation of the show and to the many standing ovations received throughout the night.
2: Oh, so I guess they were actually sitting for the most part if they had to stand for the (laughs) ovation. (laughs) That guy went to the wrong show, I guess. The crowd's
1: biggest kick, however, came when Joel caverted back and forth across the stage, climbing over the piano and speaker cabinets with the scolding rendition of Big Shot, the pedantic rocker that tells the consequences of overindulgence and excessive attention. The ironic payoff was that in Joel's exuberance, he ripped the seat of his pants.
2: <laughs> didn't that happen at Kieran Dry Gigs too? I think so. Yeah, we've we've we've, we've <laughs> covered some uh, sartorial right. issues.
1: <laughs> and the audience was surrounded by singing his lone lyrics back to him. You had to be a big shot, didn't you? An hour after the grueling marathon at the Civic Center, Billy Joel was pay- back at his hotel, strolling around the lobby, patiently signing autographs and answering questions about his personal life, song lyrics, road travel, and his musical inspirations. But to meet him is to understand why his music can be so personal to so many people. There's a warmth and sensitivity, an attribute some say has made him able to perceive situations in his own life and ingeniously transform these thoughts, feelings, and experiences into song. The versatility Billy Joel displayed played in concert reflects the same attitude the five-time Grammy winner, has affected with the production of each of his albums. Explained Joel after the show, I never do the same thing twice. To keep me interested, there has to be something new, something different. As if to prove a point, Billy's two latest album releases, The Nylon Curtain and An Innocent Man, could well have been written by two different people. The social statements made in the song Goodnight Saigon inspired Congresswoman Barbara Boxer of California, Four to co sponsor legislation to compensate Vietnam veterans suffering from Agent Orange related disability. Interesting. So he was hanging out at the hotel talking to people afterwards. That seems to be almost in response to that first show where he was over rehearsed. This woman picked up on how, after him saying, I've got to do something different, you know, how, like really how very different musically and in mood, you know, Innocent Man and Nalan Curtin are, which, you know, we've talked about.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. right, now we have, uh, from Pittsburgh, we have Billy Joel delivers. Billy Joel writes wordy songs. They tell stories full of clever, full of clever turns of phrase and occasionally an idea or two, Uh, yet a substantial percentage of the near capacity crowd sang these wordy songs right along with the performer. Some have the lyrics under their breath, some sang at the top of their lungs. That's an observation we haven't seen yet. Um, just how many people know yeah. all the words of these songs and sing along, but the rhythm section dragged many songs down. Drummer Liberty DeVito came in late on anything that came after the beat. Doug Stegmaier's bass just plodded along between them. They turned rock. It's still rock and roll into just the opposite of what it claimed to be. Said so the band wasn't really sharp either for most of the set. Wow. Okay. I'm going out of order, but yeah, with a crowd like this, Billy Joe didn't have to work very hard. All he had to do was play the hook and sing the first line and then he could just sing along he said Joel more or less loafed through the first two thirds of the set. The thick sound awfully processed by the engineer seemed like it was being produced in the studio, not on the stage. Uh, He says he kind of picked it up toward the end and then really delivered. So the band had tightened up and Joel was throwing himself into the lyrics for all he was worth. Unless he was repaying the crowd for believing in his music. I don't know that we've seen bad reviews like this on any of the other tours yet. This is kind of a surprise. I know,
1: you know, The only other one we've really done a lot of reviews on so far is turnstiles. It was pretty overwhelmingly positive what we were finding. Even if they weren't a fan of the record, they were pretty impressed
2: by the live show. So this could go either way. Joel's a pro at the Garden. Ah, this is Steve Morse again. Billy Joel has said that even hockey doesn't sound good in Boston Garden. But last night he proved his own words wrong. Conquered the notoriously tough acoustics with a rip-roaring show, Scrappy Street Smart Rock and Roll. Restored faith that he's still a hungry, highly competitive performer. An image that was tattered during a long, stiff night at the Providence Civic Center two months ago. Ah, so Steve remembers. Through that, show was characterized by miscused, erratic vocals and a worried, introverted tone. Uh, And Joel said on on stage, I guess, that night, I still get nervous on opening nights. But it seems like by now he had uh, shaken it off and was, was going at it. He was utterly persuasive. Joel drew guffaws with clever mimics of Michael Jackson and Elvis Presley.
1: Michael Jackson?
2: Yeah. Oh, this is funny. The feisty pianist, again attired in a black suit coat and white sneakers, had an answer for every occasion. When an equipment snafu threatened, he quickly headed off any dead air boredom by improvising the technical difficulty blues.
1: That's probably one of his most played songs in the first 10, yeah, ten right? years or, five or so. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, so it sounds like, you know, by the time he's in the, in Boston, he's, he's, uh, he's on his game. Do you notice it says, which he once sang during a similar mishap? Right. In Paradise Theater four years ago, Glass House <laughs>
1: Store. Girlfriend supermodel Christy Brinkley watched from the front row. Tabloid reports of her running off with singer Daryl Hall have obviously been exaggerated. So here's already the seeds for that's not her style. I like when people pick up the back and forth between Billy and Liberty because the two of them more than anybody else seem to have that back and forth. It says here, comic relief, however, was never far away. The road crew, the gay caballeros, which we've talked about, did their familiar finger snap routines on several songs. And then hilarity reigned when Joel took up a dare from drummer Liberty DeVito and the two bashed quite competently at each other's instruments. But such comedy never overwhelmed a striking program that touched upon everything acapella to do up with airy Beatlesque pop songs. So that's funny. So did Billy get on the drums and Liberty get on the piano? Sounds terrible. like
2: it. I'd love to see footage of that. Yeah, that'd be pretty funny. Okay, and uh, let's go to the Midwest. This is uh, from the Kansas City Star. You've got us feeling all right. Billy Joel earns his place in the white hot spotlight. Offered a carefully choreographed review of his greatest hits that nevertheless seemed loose and freewheeling by virtue of Mr. Joel's elfish, slightly rumpled stage presence. Not a night for those who set great store by improvisation and spontaneity. Uh, It just, you know, talks about how many lighting cues and and sound effects there are, but does note that drummer Liberty DeVito spent a good part of the evening playfully trying to sabotage songs with his, one assumes, ribbled asides to the star. Joel, whose bandaged left thumb didn't seem to interfere with his playing, took center stage later in the evening in that mock rock persona that he used so effectively in his Tell Her About It video. Um, you yeah, know, built to a rousing conclusion with uh, Still Rock and Roll to Me, Uptown Girl, Two Encores, Tell Her About It, You May Be Right, Only The Good Die Young, uh, during which Mr. Joel perched precariously on a speaker 10 feet above the arena floor. And that's okay. something we we saw in the Frankfurt video, at least there's nothing else, where he was just clearly climbing something he had not climbed before. <laughs> I, I noticed, too, they mentioned the
1: bandage on the left thumb. Yeah, Is this still remnants of the uh, motorcycle accident? Because I think it was the left thumb that was bandaged. On the Nylon Curtain Tour as well.
2: The evening had a flow. It was the five-minute wait for Encore, so the audi- uh, the house lights were kept off so the audience knew the band would be coming back out. David Brown gets compared to Mellencamp here. Yeah, It's funny you're <laughs> reading these things now. David Brown, who moves and even looks like John Cougar Mellencamp. And then I just thought this was funny. Underneath it is uh, the other review of the, of the issue is uh, Night Ranger fits loud, tired mold. The latest pretender to the Journey throne stopped in Tuesday. With its busload of ear bleed rock, <laughs> <laughs> ouch! So oh, you know, man. let let it be known, the Kansas City Star pulls no punches.
1: <laughs> no, no. There's another mention of Christy Brinkley, and again, this is where we're 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 squarely into the next phase of Billy's superstardom, where it's the celebrity couple, and they're using any opportunity they have to mention Christy. Uh, so now we're going West Coast now, the L.A. Times, May 1st of 94. Wow. And just an aside, ABC was looking to buy ESPN because the next to that article, ABC to spend one hundred and eighty eight million for ESPN. And then below it, ABC to <laughs> drop one third of its schedule probably to pay for ESPN. <laughs> uh, that's pretty funny. I love seeing old newspapers just to kind of see like the relationship with the stories that are going on at that time. Oh, yeah. Well, it's like watching old commercials, too. And speaking of, I love the ads that are in some of these as well, too. They're pretty funny. Yeah. All right. Here we go. So, yeah, the L.A. Times, Dennis Hunt, Joel Pays Homage to 50s Rock. The only new wrinkle in Billy Joel's sold out show at the forum on Sunday night was his new old songs. Ooh. All right. Interesting. The songs are new, but the style is old. It was fun watching the singer-songwriter stretch his fluid tenor to its upper reaches to imitate Frankie Valli on Uptown Girl. Even better was The Longest Time, well-schooled in the art of the street corner symphony. Otherwise, the concert opener of a Sunday-Monday engagement was essentially a rerun of his show in the same hall a little more than a year ago. The usual piece is my Life's still rock and roll to me, and she's always a woman, performed with the usual flair and competence. He mentioned just the way you are where it was polished to the point of vacuous, vacuousness. He must be tired of singing that one by now, but he has no choice. First half, the concert, Joel is relatively subdued. Kind of uh, what I'm getting so far seems a bit of a lukewarm reception to this for this review. Not slamming it, but not not like a big fan. Oh, now we're getting to my new home state, Tacoma, Washington, uh, the Tacoma Dome. And uh, I've been there a few times, actually. It's a it's a really old, weird looking white dome. It kind of looks plastic. I saw Def Leppard, Tesla and poison there together. <laughs> uh, and I saw Elton John on the farewell tour four years ago. That's how long that tour has been happening. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so this is the Tacoma news tribune in Tacoma, Washington, uh, Billy Joel to kick off a flurry of shows at Tacoma dome. There may be as many identities to Billy Joel as there are, as there are American pop music formats. I like it. Yeah, he's a musical chameleon for sure. He has been photographed as a new waiver, leather-jacketed delinquent, teen idol, piano man, and now innocent man. And all of his musical personalities will be on stage in Tacoma Tuesday. So it's, this is a show preview. Joel will be the first major performer to take the Tacoma Dome stage in a three-week May blizzard of internationally known acts. Uh, so, yeah, what's interesting about that is uh, the Tacoma Dome did just open in 1983. So... Looks like Billy uh, was one of the first, and it even says they're reconfiguring the seats for the show, which I don't know how many arenas have done that. It says the dome seating configuration will be redesigned for Billy Joel's show and allow for a total of 20,000 reserved seats, according to the promoter,
2: Albatross Productions. For the actual re- review of this show, we get Billy Joel brings out the boogie and classy concert crowd. Ooh, alliteration, huh? The crowd in the Tacoma Dome completely lost its facade of dignity a half hour before the end of the of the concert. Median age, apparently in the mid-30s, the audience was a well-behaved adult, in quotes, group. Men in sports jackets and iron jeans and many women wearing dresses. T-shirts were more likely to display Perrier than the name of a heavy metal rock band. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great... man. I want, I want to see a picture of this writer, too. Yeah. Even after the show started, the crowd maintained their composure of appreciative but controlled enthusiasm. But when Joel and his heavily fortified group kicked it to rock and roll, the crowd unabashedly rushed to the stage, jamming three aisles in the main floor's first section. Oh, and except for severe technical problems, the crowd was given triplets money worth. So I wonder if they got the blues as well. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, opening with a stirring angry young man, uh, followed by my life. Uh, Joel I don't know why they to- put the uh, different language. Yeah, that was weird. Probably. It says, vida, Me Vida. In parentheses, my life. Maybe, maybe he like made a joke about it or something. Talks about joking with the band. <laughs> hey, you're late. He kiddingly shouted at one man who was looking for his seat, and then listed the titles of songs that tardy concert goer missed. That's funny. <laughs> <then>. <laughs> he was thrown to the floor in a mock chokehold by his playful drummer. <laughs> uh, seemed to thrive on on this chore of his stage performance. Been on the road 14 years. The first time I played here. Anybody here from Seattle? yeah and Seattle's like right
1: down the road from Tacoma pretty much
2: Joel also criticized the dome claiming the acoustics made his band sound bad he was right about the band sound but not the cause the concert was marred by insufficient equipment so I wonder if that was going on too I guess with the bigger band maybe they were still getting used to having that many more people yeah
1: Dialing that in with the bigger sound, yeah. Yeah,
2: since the PA was underpowered and obviously straining itself. Goes into, you know, the the usual like late-set shenanigans. Notes there is no single Billy Joel style. Joel's talent and enthusiasm were complemented capably by an inspired band. Particularly, noted was Mark Rivera, uh, who had a sweet sax solo in Just the Way You Are. Three guitarists, a musician behind the synthesizer, or horn section, and occasionally crewmen to help out on stage. There were moments when at least fifteen people were on stage, moving and playing in the flashing stage lights, so that the stage looked like a scene from all that jazz. But let's see what the what's said about the the shows in Wembley. A little something different with the British ones is that uh, they just list they just list the uh, the names of the performers or shows with no actual headlines. It says Billy Joel. There was a time when the name Billy Joel was a sentiment for obnoxiousness. Oof! His public image was that from a jerk from Long Island combination of chest beating bravado and sentimental ballads much was forgiven when he released an innocent man full of demonically catchy hits that's the second demon reference turns out being a jerk from long island is really the source of his charm funny that this writer sees an innocent man as like sort of a turning point we've sort of wondered if like people were like oh man he's jumping the shark he's going total pop i guess this writer thinks so but in a good way his defects banal lyrics the occasional soggy ballad disappeared in the pace and verve of the performance. There was none of the syrupy stage patter visiting American entertainers usually inflict on the audience. Joel's goal, Joel goes for the sharp but good-natured sarcasm you might hear in a New Jersey diner. This uh, this writer really <laughs> has her references down. I, I applaud. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I know. It sounds like we have a convert
1: on that one. Joel's musical territory is hard to define. He's not a rock star, but neither is he a schmaltz merchant like Barry Manilow. 20 years ago, he could have been part of the Brill Building hit machine like Neil Sadaka or Neil Diamond, the two writers he most resembles. So there you have it. That's the From a Piano Man to an Innocent Man tour of 1984. You had a solid six months and change of touring from Billy and the Band. We had the introduction of horn players, background singers, which would continue Uh, you know, with horn players to this day and background singers would continue through the 80s. So this was really a turning point in the Billy Joel live show as we would see him stepping up front more and more and out from behind the piano. So a really fascinating look back at this tour. It seemed pretty fun and lighthearted. By all accounts, seemed like it took a little bit to kind of get it off the ground. But once the band and, uh, you know, new members kind of fell into the groove of it, it sounds like it was a success on all accounts.
2: And as some of these reviewers alluded to, this was Billy's big pop turn, you know, for someone that I think for a lot of people was just always considered a pop star or a pop writer. Um, this was the one that was like just officially this guy's a pop star right. for better or worse. And, you know, I mean, for his for his career, <laughs> his bank account, certainly for better, you don't hear about him losing fans from this. Uh, you don't hear about like any, like the old heads being like, F this guy now, you know, he's going total pop. I think that's right. in part because doing so many stylistic shifts anyway, that this didn't seem that mm-hmm. the, probably didn't seem that abrupt, probably very noticeable that it was a very accessible album. I would think, but they were like, well, he did a new wave album. He did yeah uh, an experimental album. Now he's doing a pop album. I guess that's just how it goes. Uh, You know Elvis Costello put out Punch Punch the Clock in '83 as well, which was his real like just pop album. I think what he said about that one was, "Uh, there was nowhere else to go, so we just made a pop album, which might have been a cop out." But you know, just showed you where some of those guys were ending up at that point. I'm very interested to hear from people who had been following him through this tour, especially before. Certainly, if anybody saw him Turnstiles or prior, and we're now uh, wandering into a Coliseum and seeing, as one reviewer noted, 15 people on stage, a much more Uh, rehearsed show and possibly a PA system that could not accommodate it all.
1: And I'm curious, too, because even if, you know, uh, someone didn't love the record or, you know, they didn't like it compared to Nylon or whatever. What's interesting is this time around, the album cycles and tour cycles were so compact and close to each other that say, you know, say you didn't love the album, but you went to the show because you're a fan still. You liked the show. By the time you had a chance to think about it, there was another record. That happened a lot between pretty much between Piano Man and this record. So the turnarounds were fast. As you would get later in the career, the gaps between these was longer and longer. So, you know, for a lot of people, if they were turned off by a record, there was more of a gap and gave somebody more time to move on that by the time the next thing came out, they weren't even on their radar anymore.
2: That's just speculation on our part. You guys have to tell us. You people have to tell us podcast at gmail.com or find us on the socials, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at Glass Glasshouses, the Billy Joel podcast. And if you happen to listen to us on an Apple Podcasts or any platform that allows you to write a review or give a rating, please give us that five-star or top rating and write a favorable review. Every top rating and favorable review uh, helps us get in front of more people, tells the algorithms that we're a uh, podcast of merit, and we end up getting, you know, push to the top of more people's queues uh so making it a fun easy and free way to support the podcast
1: yeah absolutely and we also launched early this year a uh, discord server or rather at the end of last year and we're building a great community uh it's a great spot for us and listener of the, of the podcast and uh, to all get together and chat about billy and life and other music we're into and you name it uh so it's started to do a really fun community. We've also started doing uh, these watch parties where every month we're getting together in the Discord server and we're watching a uh, live concert or a documentary from the past. And so every month we're getting together and having a shared experience uh, like Jack and I listening to an innocent man together on the last episode where we're getting together, chatting about the release and watching it in real time and then chatting about it after. It's a ton of fun. And uh, our, our friend Maddie has been uh, a partner with us in that and helping us run the stream. So it frees Jack and I up to uh, chat with y'all a little more. So I wanted to give a shout out to Maddie. And then, you know, once again, our, our good friends, Jenny and Jeff, who are really partners in this podcast, as Jack mentioned, have done years and years of research yeah. and collecting in these facts and media uh, magazine newspaper appearances and really Have been uh, the lifeblood of uh, helping us cultivate these episodes. So really can't thank them enough for being such a huge part of what we do.
2: It's been great to see the community expand like this. Um, but trying uh, recently to to, to pop in more and more. And it's been fun to, to interact a bit. So Jack's about to fall asleep right now
1: because he's battling a head cold. And we're uh, two episodes in and he's been an absolute champ getting through it. But I think we need to give him some NyQuil and tuck him
2: in because he needs to get some rest. I don't need any NyQuil. I'm going to be asleep before I hit uh, save. <laughs> but i hit save. Uh, yeah, no, we, we're in what, hour five right now?
1: Yeah, we are five hours into the night just about. So it's it's been a long, long night, but uh, a lot of fun as always, man. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we'll see you next time. All right, we'll see you soon. Thanks, everyone.
0: Achieve the American dream, the big house, the happy family, the money. What's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat?
3: Would they shop? Would I shop?
0: Would you kill?
3: Yes. <laughs> it, right there.
0: From Airship.